we open our Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 7 to continue to press these things home to our hearts this morning. Revelation chapter 7, this morning we're looking at verses 9 through 17. And as you turn there, just a, a quick recall, last Lord's Day, we looked at the first eight verses of this chapter, the description of the 144,000. And today now we turn our attention to, I believe, the same group of people that we see in the first eight verses, but who are now viewed from a different perspective. This time they're viewed in the new heavens and the new earth, in the presence of Almighty Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 7, let's begin reading in verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of these elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of their throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you for this rock-solid assurance of what awaits those who have indeed washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They become forgiven. They become cleansed. And Father, thank you for what awaits each and every one of us. If we are your children, if we too have bathed our robes in the blood of Christ when we one day enter into your presence. Father, we pray that you would open your word to us now. And likewise, open our eyes and ears to your word. Father, we come to you hungry. We come to you eager. Not just to have our already held beliefs reaffirmed for us. But Father, we want to hear your voice. We want to hear your word. We want to see glimpses of you that maybe we've never seen before. We want to see Jesus exalted. We want to find in him, Father, the hope that every one of us need this morning. And so we do pray these things for the sake of the king on his throne, your beloved son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I remember when I was younger hearing an old adage, and I don't hear it as much anymore, but it was a common phrase, and we've talked about it before. But the saying goes, this person is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Well, by now, we've, we've talked about that before. I hope that you know where I stand on that, and I hope you stand in a similar position, uh, being convinced that it's the opposite of that. We will never be of any earthly good anywhere, any place, anytime, in anything until we are utterly fixated, until we are obsessed by, until we are captivated by, until we are overwhelmed by the promised blessings of heaven and our relationship with Jesus Christ there. We must be heavenly minded. This is the exhortation of scripture to look to things above. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ where he is. Look unto Jesus. If we were to be any good down here, we must have our gaze fixed and our hearts 
captivated by the one on his throne in heaven. But I do think it's worth our time to ask the question, why should we spend the bulk of our morning this morning as we look at Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, what's the practical value of spending our time together looking at the saints around the throne in heaven? I mean, I think we would all admit it's a fascinating picture. It's neat. We want to see that's what we aspire for ourselves. But why in the world in this letter to the seven churches and what's been confronted in their churches and their hearts and their lives and the, the, the revelation of God to them in chapters five and, uh, four and five and six and now into chapter seven, why now for the churches and for every Christian in every age, why this, this look into heaven? Why spend this time? Obviously, what we have here in the passage we just read is a description of the people of God before the throne of God in heaven. Obviously, we're talking about our inheritance in the new heaven and the new earth. Got it. Why? What's the value? How does this fit with everything that's come before it? Is there any practical value to this? And the answer is a resounding yes, absolutely. And thinking about that question in my own heart this week, a couple of things come to my mind. For one thing, when you think about the glory of heaven, when you think about these things, the satisfaction that comes with being in the presence of Almighty God, being in the presence, the eternal inheritance of Jesus Christ, it serves this purpose to diminish your bondage to things down here. That's practical. If we think about it, we spend a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money, a lot of resources to devote creating a comfortable life here. Right? We, we all do that. I was talking to my son Ryan on the way in this morning. We were talking about the message. And even as a 12-year-old, as a I mean, he does it too. He's, he's investing what limited resources he has to creating a fun life here, comfortable life here. That will ultimately disintegrate. That will ultimately die. When we're gone it will all still be left here behind, and it ain't going to stick around very long. It's all going to disintegrate as well. So you compare all these things down here that we invest all of our resources in creating. Compare this to the eternal comforts in the presence of an all-sufficient king. And then all of a sudden, we realize what a waste so much of our time is down here thinking about heaven and the fullness of life therein is an incentive to losing our slavery, our bondage, our dependence upon earthly comforts. More personally, here's a second practical value of looking at this text this morning. I think it helps us to endure suffering. It doesn't matter what the nature of suffering we might be talking about. And, and honestly, if we went around the room... The suffering you're going through, you're going through, is probably completely different from the person sitting next to you. We all have our own suffering. But looking at this vision of, of Christ on his throne in heaven and the saints around his throne in eternity forever provides strength to endure present suffering. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and Paul if anyone had reason to gripe about his sufferings and it's just not right and I'm going through a lot of unfair things, I think we all want to put ourselves in that list. I would submit to you, Paul trumps us all. <laughs> Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us there. He's been meditating upon this glory in heaven here and so now he's able to say in the midst of his suffering this, nothing compared to that. In Hebrews chapter 13, we're told to joyfully embrace the reproach of Christ. Those are magnificent words. Joyfully embrace the reproach of Christ. Meaning, the very reproach that Christ endured, Lord, may His sufferings fall upon us. To joyfully pray for that. The, how in the world would we do that? I, I, Lord, I pray for the reproach of Christ, and I pray joyfully that they would be upon me. 
How do you even pray that prayer? The author of Hebrews tells us. He grounds that in the expectation of a city which is still to come. You see, his hope is there. His hope is in what we're looking at this morning in Revelation 7, 9 through 17. And so he's able to say, joyfully embrace the reproach of Christ. You see, it's looking at this vision that's described for us in this passage that it energizes us. It gives us hope. It gives us perspective. It helps us to, to weigh in the, 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 the balance scale. What, what is most important? What is most pressing? What is most valuable? What is eternal? I think 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says it most clearly. Paul says, so we do not lose heart. And again, if anyone ever had justification for losing heart, I submit to you the Apostle Paul. <laughs> in his service to the Lord, the man went through more than we could ever imagine. But he says, but we do not lose heart. I'll be honest, when I was looking at that this week, I was convicted. I lost heart a long time ago. Probably you have too. We don't lose heart. We don't get disappointed. We don't get disillusioned. We don't give up. Why? Verse 16 says, though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. And then he says this, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. You see, it's only as we fix our eyes on things we cannot see. The mystery, right? As we behold our, as we fix our eyes on things that we cannot see, the things of Revelation 7, 9 through 17, it's only then are we empowered, are we energized to endure the wasting away of our lives, the physical things, the things that we can see, the sufferings that we go through because we've come to rely on those things we can't see. Does that make sense? That's why this morning it's important for us to take time to look at this passage here in Revelation chapter 7. And I can tell you, this is a means of grace that God intends for his hurting Christians, you and I this morning, for his seven churches. But historically, this text has been used for nothing more than to argue and debate the tribulation. And we have missed out on what we suffering Christians most need to see our king and the promise of eternal hope for his people around his throne. This morning, our attention, our focus will be upon the king. As we think about this text here by way of transition, remember the broader text of Revelation chapter 7 from the Lord, last Lord's Day? Chapter 7 is an interlude between, in chapter 6, we had the opening of the six seals, and then we don't come upon the opening of the seventh seal. Remember, we're taking seven cycles around the same time period, the time from Christ's resurrection and ascension until he returns. We're looking at the same thing, seven different times, seven different perspectives. Each cycle, we may look at a different aspect of it, but we've made six passes. We're waiting on the seventh. And the sixth went like this. And the seventh doesn't come into chapter eight. Why? Why the pause? Well, think back, where did we leave off in chapter six? The sixth seal was the unrestrained wrath of King Jesus upon a world that has lived in rejection to him. Chapter 6 ends with every type of person crying out, begging, bury me alive. I would rather suffocate to death with the mountains falling upon me than to stand face to face with this king who's coming in eternal judgment. The creation is being decreated, if you will. The sky is being rolled up like a scroll. It came into existence. God said, let it be, and it came, and now that very sky is unraveling. The ground beneath the people is dissolving like water. 
Everything that a person might hold on to, to try to find safety and security or a hiding place from this coming king in judgment, it's all floating away. And so chapter 6 ends with a question. In light of this king in his unrestrained wrath, what's the question? The last verse. Who can stand? Who in the world can survive this? Chapter 7 is the answer. Chapter 7 is the theological answer to this question. And the answer is the people of God. The church are the one and only ones who can stand in the judgment. And Revelation 7 gives two different point of views, two different perspectives of that one answer. Chapters, or chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, focuses upon the church. We, we called it militant, the church on the earth, here and now. The church here, verses 9 through 17, gives us same church, but church triumphant. One is down here, the other one is up there. This is the answer to the question, who can stand? The church. And here's how. And we spent all of our time last week upon those first eight verses, the 144,000 representative of the fullness of Christ's church, uh, Jew and Gentile, throughout the ages. And now we turn to verses 9 through 17, the second of these visions, for the purpose. Why? So we can better understand Revelation? So that we might reaffirm our revelation position? No. That we might be edified. That we, in our suffering, in our hardships, in our afflictions, in our own tribulations, in our own trials, might be edified and empowered by grace this morning to cling to Christ. Today, that we might find hope. Verse 9. After this, I looked. And behold, and let's stop there for just a moment. Just a quick note. Notice the language is not, I looked and then this happened next. And we've been talking about this all along. We can't read Revelation as Westerners. Chronologically. This, then this. John is laying out his experiences. I saw this. And then I saw this. And, and, and then I saw this. It, he's not saying this happened and then this happened. He's saying, I'm telling you what I saw. And then I saw something I had not seen previously. Let me tell you about that. And there was something over here I didn't see. And so now as he transitions here, it's not chronologically now, this came next after this, but rather after this, he's saying the shift has seen, the scene has shifted now. And now I'm seeing what I saw before, but from a different perspective. Now I'm seeing God's protection over his people in the day of his unrestrained wrath in heaven for all eternity. He's looking at the church triumphant. He's looking at those who have endured. Remember the seals of Revelation chapter 6? Remember the four horsemen of the apocalypse? The conquest of greed? You remember famine? You remember the, the wars? You remember the, uh, the death? Remember all that that has that been going on in, in this world since Christ's re, uh, ascension until he returns? This is the, they've been going through all that. And now... This vision of those around the throne in eternity, these are those who've been in harm's way. These are those who, they've been through the thick of things. They've been through the afflictions. They've been through the hardships. They've been through the tribulations. They've been through the persecutions. And they conquered. They suffered, just like us. But they conquered. This is the church triumphant. This is a means of grace to you and I as we continue in our hardships and sufferings. Verse 9. And after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now again, this language that we see here, a great multitude, no one could number, from every nation, all tribes, and all peoples, and all languages, 
It's a parallel to what we saw in the previous, the 144,000. Again, keeping in mind the symbolic nature of numbers here in the book of Revelation, we saw the former picture of 144,000 being symbolic of the fullness of Christ's church, Jew and Gentile, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now we shift in verse 9. That broad number, symbolic number, is now given a more specific identity. People from every nation, all tribes, all tongues, all languages. It's just simply a, a parallel, if you will, to what we see. We're looking at the same thing, just in more clear imagery. And I think the language from every nation, from every tribe, from every language, from every tongue, when we read that, we've got to, we've got to read it biblically. That sounds an awful lot like a fulfillment of a promise that God made somewhere promise that God made somewhere. He's going to bless people from every nation. The Abrahamic covenant, right? We think back to Genesis 12 through 17. You remember that crazy, ludicrous, impossible promise God made to Abraham? You, I'm going to bless you. I'm choosing you out of everyone in the world. I'm going to send you to a land where you don't know. I'm going to make of you a great nation. And a promise that he's going to bear not just one child, but children. Here's where it gets dumb. Here's where it gets crazy. Here's where it just gets stupid. He and his wife are well beyond age of bearing children. <laughs> and if that wasn't just stupid enough, oh, by the way, it is impossible for Sarah to have children. She is barren. <laughs> it is like a dead body going into an empty tomb. There's no life in that empty tomb. And then that body coming out alive. I mean, it just, that, that you don't... Life doesn't come out of death. I mean, you don't, you don't speak into nothingness and say, let there be light, and then there comes light. I mean, that's just crazy. You don't, you don't put a dead body in a tomb and, and, and expect that thing to... It's death in that tomb. And you sure don't look into a dead womb and call out descendants more numerous than the dust of the earth, the stars in the sky, and the sands in the sea, right? It's a crazy promise. Oh, wait. God is the one who spoke into nothingness. Ex nihilo. There's nothing there. Said, let there be light. And there came light. Oh, wait. God did put his dead son in a grave. And three days later, out of that deadness came life. And what we see here in Revelation 7, that Stupid, crazy promise made to a man who is well past childbearing age with his wife and his wife is barren, unable to have children. God here absolutely fulfills that promise. What we have here in Revelation chapter 7, without question, is the fulfillment of that Abrahamic covenant. Those who inherit the promises including all believing Jews, those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, they're around this throne. Together with all believing Gentiles who have believed and professed faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, and treasure, they too are around the throne. People from every tribe, every language, every tongue, every, they're all there. Just right there, we could in the sermon there and just say, worship your God. <laughs> a God who made such a ridiculous promise as that and brought it to fulfillment. The wonder of our God's faithfulness. Beloved, Revelation 7 is for suffering Christians in the seven churches of Asia Minor and all of us as well. What are you going through this morning? It's got you so down. That your God is insufficient to overcome it. Is our view of God so low, so minimal? This is why Paul says we don't. Uh, we have justification for being overcome. We have justification for being disappointed, for being discouraged, for all the suffering, but we don't. Because look up around that throne. Every one of those from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You know what? You know what they went through to get there? Hardship, suffering, persecution, great tribulation. 
before the throne of God above. There they are. What a glorious reality. They're standing before the throne of God. Don't miss, where, don't miss the position here. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Again, this is something we can't rush past. What was the question of Revelation chapter 6, verse 17? Who can stand? When King Jesus comes in judgment, who can stand? It is not an accident that here in this passage, as the answer to that question is being given, the church can stand. That here, the exact same word is used. Here, they're standing before the throne and before the, the Lamb. Standing. It's not coincidental. It's not accidental. It's not, that's neat. That is divine. That is answering. These are the ones who can stand. Look, they're standing. And standing here is not so much about their position, like standing as opposed to kneeling or sitting or, or laying down prostrate or whatever the case may be. The idea here is that they're home. They're home. They've been through a lot. When they were the church militant down here, everything we've seen, everything we endure, hardship, trials, tribulations, affliction, persecution, you name it. But now, they're home. They're freed from the adversities that dogged them as Christians when they sojourned on the earth. Now, they have complete access to God, complete access to the King. They are before the throne Full access. And not only that, John tells us there's certain things about them as they're around the throne. We're told that, and there in verse 9, they're clothed in white robes. Now, we've seen this in Revelation already. To the church at, at Sardis, we're told that some there had white garments, some had soiled theirs, others had not. In the fifth seal, the martyrs were each given a white robe. Now, we're accustomed, I think, naturally we think white robe, it must mean purity, it must mean holiness. No. I mean, it does. But it, it, by and large here, the robe speaks primarily of victory. It's victory. In ancient Rome, a conquering general, we talked about this a few weeks ago, a conquering general would be given a crown to wear, and he'd be given a white robe. And so after he won a battle, he'd ride in on his horse, on his white horse, in a white robe with a crown. And it's a symbol of victory. This is the conquering king. This is the victorious one. This is the one who's conquered. And so these in their white robes, it's, it's a picture of victory. They're around the throne, victorious over all that they went through, and all the hardships, the afflictions, the great tribulations, the difficulties. The, they're victorious. They conquered. Remember what Christ said to the seven churches? To those who conquer in the midst of all their hardships, you have these promises. That's what's pictured here. These have conquered their victories. And to reaffirm that victory is the sentiment there of the white uh, robes, we also there, they also have in their hands palm branches. Palm branches. Palm branches were traditionally a symbol of victory. Same idea here, just being reinforced. Think back to, to uh, the few occasions where we see that when Jesus was making his way into Jerusalem, the, the multitudes gathered. What did they have? And they laid down in front of him. Palm branches. That wasn't just a cultural nicety. That wasn't just a, well, we got palm branches. Let's, palm branches were a picture of victory. They did so because they thought Jesus was coming as a conquering king to overturn the Roman Empire. He is a conquering king, but he didn't do it the way that they thought, so they turned on him. And these very ones throwing down the palm branches were the ones who yelled, crucify him, just days later. But the palm branches, the reason they do it when Christ enters in on the donkey is because in their minds, this is the conquering king. The idea of the palm branches actually takes its origin all the way back in the book of Numbers. Remember those feasts and festivals? There's one called the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles, it would, it would, the people would come together, and it was a celebration looking backwards to God's faithfulness to his people in their wilderness wanderings. Please stay with me at this point. This is so important to understand everything that's coming forward. They would come together and celebrate those 40 years in the wilderness. Life in the wilderness by nature is hard. 
It was prolonged in the wilderness because of their disobedience. But it was hard. It was burdensome. They suffered. There was hunger. There was thirst. There was heat. Great trials, great tribulations, great hardships, great affliction. The 40 years. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a time of coming together, looking back upon God brought them out of Egypt, their bondage to slavery, and led them to the promised land. But the journey to the promised land was paved with trials, with hardships, with afflictions, with tribulations, with suffering. To get from where they are in bondage to get to the promised land, they had to go through a lot of stuff. It was the means to get there. When we get to the New Testament, right? Christ takes that picture and says that's the Christian life as well. The path from our Egypt, what is that? Our bondage, our slavery to what? To sin, to self, to Satan. That's where we begin. That's, that's the whole reason the whole Exodus thing is a picture, New Testament picture of that. The journey from there to the promised land for us, which is what we're looking at in Revelation 7, 9 through 17, heaven is paved with, well, you tell me, Christian. Is it a bunch of just happy-go-lucky, easy, no problem, easy life? It's paved with what? Hardship, suffering, difficulty, troubles. And lest we think that that's unusual, friends, that was the way for Jesus. For the joy that was set before him, what did he have to endure? The cross, the suffering, the despising, the shame. All of that, that's the Christian life. That's always been that's the whole story of the Bible. But at the Feast of Tabernacles, they look back on that 40 years of wilderness wanderings and they remember all the hardships and the waving of the palm branches is a celebration. God brought us through. There would have been no other way. We know that, don't we? Suffering Christian, going through hardship, you don't have the strength for another day. If we will survive and make it to the end, it will solely be by God's grace, by God's power, by God's work in us. It's the same reason how they got from where they were in the wilderness to the promised land. Were they the ones who overcame the armies that occupied the promised land when they got there? Over and over in Joshua, God says, I'll do it. I'll defeat them. I'll give you the promised land, and I will overcome those who occupy it to give it to you. The Feast of the Tabernacles was celebrated until, it was intended to be until Christ came, a celebration of God's victory over their every hardship, their every trial, their every affliction, their every tribulation, their every difficulty. And this innumerable multitude from every nation, tribe, peoples, and language dressed in white robes, they're waving these palm branches in victory. Why? Because they too can look back over their 40 years in the wilderness. Would have been more than 40 years for most of them. The Christian life is one of, you're brought out of slavery and bondage by the grace of God, and the journey to here is full of hardships and afflictions and difficulties and trials and tribulations. And they look back and they're in white robes, victory. They're waving their palm branches, victory. In celebration of them? We did it? No. God, no. God forbid, no. In celebration, we have conquered, we have overcome, we are victors because God has brought us home. If we use the language of, remember, how does the church militant, the 144,000 symbolic in the first eight verses, how can they stand in the judgment? Remember, the winds are right, of God's final judgment are ready to blow. Christ comes and says, hold up. Not until every one of them are sealed. I have my number. When they're sealed, what's the seal? The blood of Christ. 
We just sang it. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Until everyone is covered with the blood of Christ. Because that's the only way to stand. That's the only way to conquer. That's the only way to get from here to there. And so likewise, they overcame. They've been sealed. In their lifetime, they were every bit as weak as we are. They were every bit as burdened as we are. Are you exhausted this morning? I've talked to some of you this morning. I know you are. And guess what? You're not alone. I don't mean that to undermine you. I mean that to say, look up and know that they went through the exact same things you're going through and probably worse. And look at them in their white robes of victory. Look at them waving their palm branches. They conquered, not because they're stronger than you and I. Look what God did by grace. Look at the conquering king. Down here, us, in our suffering, cling to this one who is the only one who can get you there. Do you see? And therefore, these victorious white-robed saints are standing. And verse 10, crying out with a loud... What else would they do? Crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's an emotional explosion. They know. They're looking back on their Christian lives. They're looking on the suffering and the trials and the great tribulations and the hardships they went through. And they know the only way they got from there to here, this kind of salvation from here to there, is of God. There is no other way. It is His grace. It is the Lamb who has done this for us. So they are exploding in worship. And notice this word. It's all of God. There's no sentiment of God did part of it and, and hey, I mean, we, man, we, we, we mustered up. We pulled our bootstraps up on that day. Things were really tough. I, I, I muscled through. No, it is all of God. He receives all the praise, the glory. And that's why worship, when we sing, it's all about Him. Jesus paid it all. Come behold the wondrous mystery of who Christ is, His incarnation, His life, His work, His death, His resurrection, because it's all... Uh, Come be around the throne of God. Our hope is Christ. It's all about Him. And then we see the fullness of heaven joining them in worship, saying, Amen. They're just reaffirming. Hey, these saints around the throne, Amen. Truly, right? They get it right. Salvation is of the Lord. We watched it. We, we watched what they were going through, the hardships, the great tribulations, the difficulties, the hardships, all of it. So God did it. And then in verse 12, they join in blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Do you see the glorious sight? Do you see how this is intended to empower, to encourage the seven churches of Asia Minor and Covenant Life Church because of everything we've explained up to this point that's symbolic of every church and every age. But it's one thing for us to see those saints who were at one time the church militant, where we are, who have made it to the church triumphant. How do we get there? It's an important question. How did they get there? How do we get there? And I ask that question because that's the question that's asked in verse 13. Here God wants to make sure we don't miss. This is what he holds out for his people by grace. But you better know how to get there. And that's what verse 13 is all about. In verse 13, it's fascinating. Again, this is a vision, but one of the elders it appears walks right out of the vision to John. Again, we're dealing with apocalyptic literature. We don't take it literally. People have tried and it's created all kinds of just crazy stuff that totally gets away from what this text is intended to be. This elder almost comes out of the vision. John is watching it, but now John is drawn into the vision, if you will, because this elder asks this question. Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? John doesn't know. How could he know? He's learning just like we are. And so he replies, sir, you know. And we need to understand, the elder asks the question rhetorically. What's a rhetorical question? 
you ask it, you know the answer, right? You're asking it to stimulate thought, right? It's not, I, I'm asking you not because I don't know, it's because I want you to think about the question, right? And so, likewise, the elder comes because he wants to specifically draw attention to. You have this glorious vision, but hone in on this. Who are these people? How did they get there? And John replies, sir, you know, you tell me. And oh my, oh my, if only this elder knew the controversies that he was going to cause throughout church history with his answer. Because he replies, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So the question is, what is the great tribulation? Now, I was taught that this great tribulation is exclusively sometime approximately seven years prior to the return of Jesus Christ. Right, that's what I taught. That's what I taught many people for a time period. It's um, not what I hold anymore. And again, we're still going to be friends, and you will have every right to disagree with me. That was a position that was not held until at least 1850. Prior to that, nobody understood the Great Tribulation in that regards. You have almost 1,900 years of church history, and nobody understood the Great Tribulation in that way. In fact, John himself, we have evidence, didn't understand it in that way. Those who read the book of Revelation and commented on it, contemporaries of John in his day and in the early church, none of them interpreted it in that way. That's a very recent modern understanding. And I'm not going to ask you just, oh, well, Jake said that. Therefore, I'm just going to deconstruct all my already held beliefs, and I'm going to go with what Jake says. I know that's not going to happen. I'm not going to ask you to. I will ask you just to consider, consider that what we have here, what John has in mind, we want to be biblical about it. What biblically can we point to to try to understand what did John mean? Not my favorite theologian from the 19th or 20th. What did John mean? What did God intend? And the fact is, there's only one other place in the New Testament, outside of this passage, where that phrase, the great tribulation, occurs. That's in Matthew chapter 24. All right, many of you know that passage where Jesus himself is talking about these things. And what's clearly in these two twin passages is they are an allusion to Daniel chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1 Daniel prophesied, and at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of her people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. Now, if you go back and look at Daniel's prophecy there, that time of tribulation that's coming, that Old Testament prophet prophesying about a future time, in the context of Daniel, the basis for that tribulation is, stay with me here, it's God's people are facing persecution, suffering, tribulation because of their covenant loyalty to God in the face of external persecution. So by the state, the state is applying pressure to them. And if they won't relent of their loyalty to God, then they're going to go through a time of great suffering. Likewise, there's false teaching going on, which causes apostasy for many people within the covenant community. So you've got external pressures from the state being applied down, and if they don't relent, they will go through a time of intense suffering. And then you've got false teaching from within the congregation that leads to apostasy. Back to the seven letters to the seven churches. Is that not the exact same thing he condemns to the seven churches? To the church at Ephesus. You've left your first love. You're no longer covenantly loyal. You have compromised with the state, the Roman Empire. And now I have this against you. I call you to repent. And then you have the church at Smyrna who did not 
They were not accused of, their, of compromising the state. And what does Jesus say? You have been through his own word, tribulation, and there is more his word, tribulation, to come. You see, the state was applying pressure. Ephesus succumbed. They compromised. Smyrna did not. Therefore, Smyrna will go through, go back and look at Revelation chapter 2, tribulation. They are going through it, and then right after that, he says, and there will be more tribulation to come. Pergamum, do you remember what they were condemned for? They had allowed false teaching into the church, and it had created apostates. The very thing Daniel warned about. Thyatira was also compromised. They were marred by immorality. So when you look at those seven churches, who are what? Symbolic of every church in every age. Remember the things that God condemns in them are the same things we have to wrestle with in our own hearts, compromise with the world. Letting apostasy into the life of the church, which is so dangerous today. Jesus plus something. Jesus, we were talking about this morning. We gather together in the house of the Lord and we pray the word, we preach the Lord, we sing the word. And there's such a, a desire for entertainment in the life of the church. Compromise with the world. And Daniel warns, the mark of that day will be tribulation for those who remain in covenant loyalty to God. So the tribulation is great because of the intensity of it, because of the, the seduction and the oppression that believers pass through in this world as they seek to live a life of faithfulness to God. So I commend to you Yes, the Great Tribulation is about seven years before Jesus returns. And also about every year since the ascension of Jesus Christ until he returns. The Great Tribulation was in effect in John's day in these seven churches. John says as much in Revelation chapter 1 verse 9, John, your brother and partner in the Tribulation. Revelation chapter 2 to the church at Smyrna, I already made reference to this, but Christ says, I know your, his word, tribulation, same word that we see here in Revelation. I, I know your tribulation, I know what you're going through, your poverty. Why are they poverty? Because the state has brought, enacted laws against them because of their loyalty to God. They would not be loyal to the state. And so therefore they're going through this tribulation. And then Christ says to this church, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Same word we have here. Unless we think it's confined only to Revelation, Jesus himself in John 16 says this, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have same word here, tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome. I have conquered. Acts 14, 21. Through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, same word, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all those things, in tribulation and distress, all those things, we are more than conquerors, overcomers, victors, white robes, palm branches. We are victors through him, Christ, who loved us. 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted, will endure tribulation. Philippians 1, 29, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you will suffer. It is part of the Christian life. It is an absolute certainty. Romans 5.3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings and our tribulations. Knowing that, don't miss this, sufferings, tribulations, produce endurance. Tribulations, afflictions, hardships, trials, put them in their biblical context. Jesus himself, the Apostle Paul has told us all throughout, 
suffering, persecution, tribulations, distress, all these things are a means of grace that God uses to keep us faithful to Him. What have we done? We've taken this great tribulation and made it something disconnected from us. Some distant future, really, that has no connection to the seven churches at all or along to us. Yet Jesus said, have you not understood? Tribulation is the Christian life. What would your prayers, I mean, just let's be honest for a minute. How diligent would you find your prayers to be, your life in Christ, your clinging to Christ be, if there were no sufferings whatsoever? Wishful thinking, right? <laughs> we might want to think, well, man, my, my, my allegiance to Christ would be stronger than ever if I didn't have those things. But can I tell you what goes on in my heart? When I don't have tribulations going on, I become pretty self-sufficient. You're going to think bad of me. When things are going well, I, Sometimes I feel like I don't need to pray. I don't need to worship. I don't need to seek the Lord. And that certainly is not the Christian life, distancing myself from my king. Tribulations, sufferings, trials are a means of grace that have been given to us to keep us clinging, to keep us pursuing, to keep seeking him. God brings us together and compels us to seek Christ and to cling to Christ day after day after day because we are weak, we are needy, we are suffering, we are going through great tribulations in this life because of our allegiance to Jesus Christ. We've had family who's turned against us. We may be going through financial problems. We may be having relationship problems, all kinds of different things because of our... And man, it's hard. And that's just our own sanitary experience. What about those all over the world who would probably slap us to our face if they would want to say, no, no, the, the hard stuff comes seven years in the future. Take somebody who's in a prison today, right now, who's in an underground church who cannot work. They would slap us in our face and rightfully see, don't take offense to it, if they heard us say, the bad stuff is still to come. Just because it hasn't necessarily been our personal experience doesn't mean it's not going on. And again, note, who are these it's those who've come through the great tribulation, but not just that. Oh, Satan would love for us just, let's just spend our time just arguing about that. Listen, if you disagree, I promise you, we're going to be best friends. We're fine. The point is, those who made it through the tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That connection is so important. It is not though we get saved through our tribulations. You know, I've suffered, so God's going to, man, you, you deserve it. You're going to get there. No. We're saved through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's they who have made it through their tribulation and both and, and have washed their robes and made them in the, in the blood of the Lamb. Do you see it's, Take these two ideas together. Let's not just strip out the great tribulation and just focus. You gotta, it's as we go through these hardships and we are daily washing our robes in the blood of Jesus Christ. We are daily in all the circumstances, in all of our sufferings, in all of our tribulations, in all of our hardships. We are bringing ourselves to the Lamb and we are seeking Him. We are, we are hungering after Him. We're clinging to Him, putting our confidence in Him. We come daily. We wash daily. We repent daily. Moment after moment after moment after moment, daily. We believe, we receive, we appropriate the blood. How else? How do you get through your suffering? If it's something other than washing your robes in the blood of Christ at every turn, you're probably in a perpetual spiral of cynicism and depression and discouragement. And I'm not talking about just that up here, you know, I got I'm a quiet time. I'm talking about I get my soul into Christ and I cling to him because I got nothing else. Who are these who have conquered, who are victorious, though they've been in the same place we are? They've made it through the great tribulation that they've gone through, and they did so by dipping in the robe of Jesus Christ every single turn. And that's their hope. 
That's how they got there. And in that way, please don't take this the wrong way to my hurting brothers and sisters this morning. In that way, we can thank God for tribulation like Paul did. We can, with Paul, excuse me, James, count it all joy when you face sufferings and persecutions and tribulations of various kinds. Why? Because it's a means of grace that God is using to keep me from becoming self-sufficient. It's a means of grace that God is using to keep me from going, God, appreciate it, I don't need you today. That person won't be around the throne of God above. How do you get there? Clinging to Jesus from the moment of my conversion. And I don't let go until he brings me home. And the text closes just, here's the picture. They're around the throne. What do believers do around the throne day and night? Very quickly. The text tells us in verse 15, they serve him day and night in his temple. The word serve there is not like we serve. We think of serve in terms of doing something. I'm going to go take something. I'm going to do something for it. That's a right understanding, but that's not this understanding. The word here is it's like the service of the priests in the Old Testament, worship. They worship night and day. They worship the Lord. They serve him. And they find great joy and contentment and satisfaction as they worship him. Keep reading there. Verse 15, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. The word shelter there is tabernacle. We just don't have time. Tabernacle there. Tabernacle was set up. That's where you went to go and meet with the living God. That's, he made his presence dwell there. Up here, he brings you to him. He, he is the tabernacle. He is the one where the Shekinah glory of God is revealed. He is the one who surrounds you and I forever and ever. He brings us home to dwell under his wings in his Shekinah glory forever and ever and ever. You know, when you have a good relationship with your family, it's good to go home after a long day, isn't it? Now, if you don't have one, that's, that's another matter. But you've been at work all day, or you've just been out of town, if you've got a good, it's good to go home. I, just, I want to see the wife, the husband, children, grandchildren. I just want to be together. I want to sit down. We just want to talk together. We want to walk together. Let's eat a meal together. That's the picture I see with these saints around the throne of God above. I'm home. And like in the Feast of Tabernacles, I look back. Oh, the great tribulations I went through. I thank God for them. Praise God. Praise the King. For the blood of Jesus Christ. Because I've conquered. I'm victorious. I've home. And it is good. And how will this happen? Verse 17. For the lamb in the midst of their throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Talked with a lady this week talking about her situation. She was just sobbing. I know those tears in my own life. My family knows those tears. You know those tears. Around the throne of God's a tearless eternity. No more hunger. No more thirst. No more scorching heat because we're tabernacled by Almighty God. No unfulfilled ambitions, no more longings. And you will never, ever take your king for granted again. Don't we do that now? I do. I don't like it. I don't want to. Something I war against when it's important to me. But here, these around the throne, they never take Christ for granted. It's all about, they have found everything they were looking They found their joy, their hope. In Jesus Christ. And they are content. They are happy. We would be so mistaken. If we don't understand what's happening here. How did Rome, excuse me, Revelation chapter 6 end? The 
unrestrained wrath of King Jesus, decreating all of creation and every type of person saying, bury me alive. I have no desire to stand face to face with this one. Who can stand against one like this? And it's not by accident. How does chapter 7 end? That same lamb will dwell with his people. And he will lead them. And he will shepherd them. And he will satisfy them. And he will love them. And they will be filled by him. Do you see the difference? Who can stand? Only the church that's sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And when they're sealed and given their final victory, the king is their everything. That's the promise of the gospel for you and I, suffering Christians. Listen again, when I use the terminology great tribulation, you've heard how I understand it. I, I don't, I'm not asking you to see it the same way. I will say this, you at least have to admit there's a lot of tribulations you're going through and I'm going through as well. The promise of Revelation 7 is God will preserve you. Are you marked by the blood of Jesus Christ, repented of your sin, profess faith in Jesus Christ? If so, you have the promise that even through the most severe tribulations, which for you and I may still be to come, be encouraged. The Lamb of God is our shepherd. We will be victorious. What else can you say but hallelujah? What a Savior.